All right, so the Beatitudes. Um, let's read the beginning of Matthew 5 together. Today is the third of the Beatitudes. So, Matthew 5, we'll start with verse 1 and go up to verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, This is the third of the Beatitudes. It's verse 5. And by now, we should be able to notice some progression in thought in these Beatitudes. The Beatitudes aren't, you know, it's, it's not a circle where the Beatitudes are just kind of chasing their tail all the way through. There is a progression of thought. We're going somewhere. Um, it begins with Jesus confronting us with God, God in His greatness, God in His holiness, God in His perfect righteousness. And when you confront God with all that He is, and you see yourself clearly in that context with who you are, you are struck with your own poverty of spirit. Um, God is all holy. He is all righteous. And we are none of those things. We are bankrupt morally. And if you're really struck with how bankrupt you are morally, you cannot be cold and indifferent to that reality. You're brought to your knees to mourn over the fact that you are so sinful in the presence of a righteous and a holy God. And if those two things really grip your soul, that is going to naturally have consequences for how you see yourself in connection with other people. And so here, in the Beatitudes, there's this shift. It's not an absolute shift, it's a subtle shift. From an emphasis on what all of this means for our relationship with God to what it means for our relationship toward one another, toward our fellow man. If you're really struck with how poor in spirit you are, if you're really struck with how mournful you should be for your own sinfulness, You're going to interact with other people in a meek way. Your life is going to be characterized by meekness as you rub shoulders with other people. Meekness is a word that we don't much use anymore. Um, The Bible uses it, and meekness is a significant theme from one end of Scripture to the other. But if we're not at church, we're not likely to hear that word. And so it is for many people today, a very unfamiliar word. It's easy, therefore, to misunderstand it. What does meekness mean? Um, It's easy to think that it just means weakness. It means not having enough strength to get yourself out of bed in the morning. It means being a milk toast all day long in the face of significant opposition. And that's not what meekness means. Um, That begins to dawn on us when we just let the Bible speak for itself, particularly when you allow the Bible to speak to all of us about people in the biblical record who truly were meek. These are not weak people. Um, I think, first of all, of Moses. Moses, um, in Numbers chapter 12, there's this famous statement, Numbers 12 and verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And you said that in its own context. It's very, it's very instructive. Miriam and Aaron have his brother and his sister, they've come to doubt his judgment. They've come to doubt his leadership over the nation of Israel. Um, And they have said publicly a number of negative things about his own judgment. This is different than the doubt that um, 
Dathan and Abiram, and that Korah will later express in Numbers 16. Because Noah, excuse me, Moses, Moses knows these people pretty well, and he knows that they know him pretty well. It's his own sister, his older sister and his older brother. And um, Miriam is older than Moses by a good bit, uh, perhaps 10 years, maybe 15 years older. She knows him pretty well. And I think he chooses not to defend himself in the face of her criticisms. I don't know exactly why, but my guess is he knows that there's no way for that conversation to end well. Uh, he knows what all that she knows about him, and he knows that if he tries to defend himself to her, uh, she can have some counter-arguments that have a lot of good evidence to them. And very quickly, this is just going to spiral downward into uh, a braggadocious argument. Knowing that he cannot be effective as the leader that he's been called to, he just lets it go. Of course, you know how the story goes. God steps in and he says to Miriam, I know this man inside and out. I have spoken to him face to face, and what you have said about him is not true. What you have said about him is wrong. Whatever you say about Moses in that passage, it's very clear that he was meek in that passage, but it's also equally clear that he was not weak in that passage. You can't lead all of those people through 40 years in the wilderness and be a weak person. Another good example from the Old Testament would be David. Uh, I think in particular of 2 Samuel 16. Uh, the word meek does not occur in this passage, but there are enough parallels between what you see in David's life in 2 Samuel 16 and what you see in Numbers chapter 12 that I think it's a, it's a low-level inference to say this is a good example of, of meekness. David is, in this scene, fleeing from Jerusalem, and he's fleeing from his son Absalom. Absalom has successfully put together a revolt um, and he has more troops on his side than David has been able to muster on his side. And so David realizes through counsel that if he's going to survive this, he's going to have to flee uh, his own capital. And so while he's fleeing to get away from the onslaught of Absalom and his men, Shimei, who is part of the family of Saul, takes this as an opportunity to stand up and curse David. And he lets him have it. Ooh. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man, he says. And then he asserts, the Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul. And David's men are, of course, seriously offended. And they, they tell David, you just say the word and this dog will be dead. And David says, leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to do so. Really? Now, come on, David, You're, you are not guilty of the blood of Saul. How often did he have an opportunity to take Saul's life to harm Saul? He absolutely refused to do so. He actually worked hard to defend all of the lives of Saul's household all the way up to this point in his life. But David understands something that his men do not understand. He understands something, actually, that Shimei probably does not understand, and that is he knows He's not guilty for the blood of Saul, but he is guilty for the blood of Uriah. He is guilty for taking Uriah's wife and then killing him in cold blood. And he also knows that the prophet Nathan has explained all of this to David. And he said, because you have done this, you will have conflict in your family for the rest of your days. He knows that in the details, Shimei is wrong, but he knows in the big picture, he's more right than he realizes. 
Uh, when it comes to defending his dynasty, when it comes to defending his throne, which has been given to him by the Davidic covenant, he will defend that. He will fight to the end for that because that is part of the word of God to him. That is part of the promise of God. But he will not defend his own integrity, not at this point. He sees in the words of Shimei a piece of God's own chastening. This is a mark of meekness. The preeminent example, of course, in Scripture is Jesus. Jesus is the preeminent example of meekness. He says this himself about himself. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. These are precious words. Come unto me, he says to the crowds, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Jesus was a meek man, and it is this attribute of his, it's one of the attributes that the prophets in the Old Testament see fit to prophesy about him. This is an attribute that Jesus put on display, and it's not a small, insignificant attribute. It's something that is prophesied in the Old Testament and then lived out by Jesus in the New Testament. I think of the servant songs that are in the book of Isaiah. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. Um, They are these beautiful poems where with remarkable um, foresight and clarity of vision, the prophet Isaiah is allowed to see into the future and with beautiful poetry predict what the Messiah will be like and what the Messiah will do. Sometimes Jehovah himself speaks about what his servant will do, the Messiah. Sometimes the Messiah himself, the servant, speaks about what he will do. And I think about Isaiah 42, which is the first of these servant songs. There Jehovah describes his coming servant as one who will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Of course, that doesn't mean that he would never speak loudly in public because, you know, obviously he did repeatedly. It's just a figure of speech for saying the kind of person that he would be. He would not be a stirrer up of strife. He would not be a quarrelsome person. He would not be the kind of person that took delight in spreading dissension. If he were to take to Twitter today, I'll let you finish the sentence. Um, If he were to get into the comments at the end of a blog post, there are certain things he just would not say because he was not a quarrelsome person. Uh, He would not be like the talk radio personalities we're also very much familiar with. Uh, He's not the kind of person that if he were to be involved in the news media, he would be, you know, one of those shows that love to have the split panel where people are bark, 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 bark. Not the kind of person that he was. He wouldn't be the kind of person to participate in that split panel kind of thing. Um, What did it look like? It looked like Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, uh, I know this is a great insight, right? It comes right after Matthew 11. Um, Matthew 11 ends with this statement about um, him being meek and lowly in heart. And then right after that, you've got some clashes that Jesus has at the beginning of Matthew 12 between him and the Pharisees. Uh, He heals a man on the Sabbath day, and that drives them to distraction. How can you do this? And Jesus says, look at the Old Testament doesn't say anything about not being able to show mercy to other people on the Sabbath day. Some other things that he does on the Sabbath day, they carp and complain against him. And then he says, I am fully within my right to do this, if for no other reason this, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Woo! Well, that lit the fuse. The common people that were all around, they loved it. 
They saw Jesus as their champion. The Pharisees were driven to distraction by it. Um, and it was at that point that they began to plot against him to figure out some way that they could put him to death. And then Jesus, in response, we're told in Matthew 12, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken before by the prophet Isaiah. And then it quotes in length, in detail, the Isaiah 42 prophecy that I just had us read together a few minutes ago. Jesus withdraws when he faces this kind of opposition from the Pharisees. Why? It's not because he's afraid of them. It's not because he can't bear the thought of interpersonal conflict. No. He withdraws from them, I think, because he senses that his ministry is approaching the cusp of a spiral. Um, That if he allows this to keep going, the common people might get really up in their spirit and start thinking about revolt. And he knows where that will lead. It will not lead to the accomplishment of his mission. It won't lead them to what they're looking for either. It will lead them to getting hurt. It will lead them to getting damaged. And it will cut against the grain of what Isaiah 42 was talking about in the beginning. He would not be quarrelsome. He would not be the kind of person that would take delight in spreading dissension. In fact, toward the end of the Isaiah 42 servant song, it goes on to say, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Prideful, sinful leaders take advantage of the weak. They take advantage of the poor. They take advantage of the downtrodden. But Jesus has pity on the downtrodden, those bruised by sin, those bruised by the devil, those damaged by difficult circumstances. He shows love and concern to so that in the midst of all of their difficult circumstances, they come to flourish. They come to have hope again. He's not afraid of conflict, but he is committed to pursuing conflict such that it allows him to accomplish the will of his father who had called him into the world. Later on in his ministry, he would reignite the tensions with the Pharisees and with all of the Jewish religious leaders, but he would do so in a way that would fulfill the fourth servant song. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He ends up standing before the Sanhedrin, and they make all of these false accusations against him, and he does not answer them. Not because the false accusations are true. They are not true but because answering them and winning the argument in that moment would overturn the whole reason that he came. He came to be misunderstood. He came to be spoken against. He came to be lied about. He came to die a humiliating death that he might fulfill the will of his father. That is what was preeminent. He was going to fulfill the will of his father right to the end. Nothing would stop him. These are pictures of meekness. And from these pictures, you can tell that meekness very definitely is not weakness. What is meekness? Well, the dictionary does pretty okay. See if this describes um, what we have just been talking about. One dictionary definition is that meekness is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Well, that sounds easy. (laughs) I used to think I was a meek person, and then I met a difficult person. And then I found that difficult people have no right to live. Uh, And I learned that that was an opportunity for me to learn meekness. Meekness is enduring injury with patience, without resentment. 
Here's another definition. It helps to complement that one. Meekness is a quiet spirit that comes from complete submission to the will of another. Well, that's really good. Actually, put those two together. Meekness is a quiet spirit characterized by enduring injury with patience and without resentment that comes from complete submission to the will of another. By that definition, meekness can be a vice or it can be a virtue. It depends on whose will you're submitted to. If you submit your will to yourself or to someone who does not have your best interest at heart, it's not a virtue, it's a vice. But if you submit your will to God, the Father of all, who knows all, who is all holy and all righteous, very definitely this is a virtue. And it's the thing that Jesus is talking about right here. Another great way to say it is what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his study on the Sermon on the Mount. Speaking of this verse and speaking of this theme of meekness, he says, meekness is essentially a true view of self, expressing itself in attitude and in conduct with reference to others. A meek person is a person who sees himself as he truly is. For Jesus Christ, that means seeing that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was the truth of his mission, and because he understood that that was the truth of his mission, he lived in submission to the will of his Father. For a sinner, and that's all of us, living in the truth means seeing ourselves before God as we truly are, poor in spirit, something that we should weep over. So when people mistreat us, our first response is not to defend ourselves but to remind ourselves that even in that mistreatment, there's a good bit of truth. I will never forget um, being at the funeral of, here's another reminder of my own mortality. The older you get, the more you talk about the funerals you've been to. Anyway, um, I remember being at the funeral of Dr. Bob Jr., and someone told this story. One of the people giving a tribute said they they were talking to Dr. Bob and, uh, they were talking about how distressed they were because people in the church where they were pastor, they were lying about them, spreading rumors that just weren't true. And at one point in the conversation, Dr. Bob put his hand on that man's shoulder and, and said, don't worry about it. It's when they start telling the truth about you that you need to start worrying. And as soon as he said that, I laughed. Well, the whole audience laughed. And I remember the rest of that day, I thought, oh, that is funny. And then it wormed its way into my soul. And I thought, you know, that's funny, but there's a lot of ministry in the laughter of that. That really is what David's doing. Um, If you only knew me as God knows me, you'd have a lot more to say about me than what you are currently saying. So long as you're telling lies about me, I feel so much better than if you were actually telling the truth. When we remember that, we remind ourselves not to be so quick to defend ourselves when we face mistreatment. This is part of what it means to be meek. Now, that doesn't mean that you never defend yourself, but it means that your focus is on something different. Instead of being preeminently concerned about your own reputation, you're preeminently concerned about what God has sent you into this world to do. And if accomplishing God's will fits hand in glove with defending your own integrity, then defend your own integrity. If it really is contrary to, at that moment, defending your own integrity, be willing to do what Moses did. Be willing to do 
uh, what Jesus did on a number of different occasions. Be willing to do what David did on that one occasion. By the way, D.A. Carson's definition of meekness, referring to, this is in his study on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, picks up on this, and I think this is useful as well. He said, meekness is a controlled desire to see the other's interests advanced ahead of one's own interest. Um, the meek person values the edification of his fellow man above the defense of his own reputation. Now, um, please don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that being meek means that you don't care. That because you're meek, you face opposition, you don't care, you just immediately capitulate to whatever the other side is doing, to whatever the mistreatment is that's burning and motivating the other side. You do care. And I think remembering uh, Carson's statement there, a controlled desire to see another's interest advanced ahead of one's own, um, is very good to keep in mind. There is a desire there, but the desire that you have is pointed toward the right things. Again, Jesus is our example. And I think probably the best way to see how Jesus is our example is to go again to the Old Testament. The third of the servant songs is found in Isaiah 50. And that's a beautiful servant song because you have the servant himself speaking to Jehovah, the Father, about some of his own frustrations and his own challenges. Marvelous because it's 700 years before Jesus actually experiences these things on, on earth. I would encourage you to go there. In fact, let's go there right now. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. And you can see the intensity of the desire that the servant has, and yet it's all in the interest of meekness. It's kind of funny. If I had a paper Bible, I could find it in a snap. But because I have these digital tools that make everything so much easier, so much harder... Isaiah 50, and this is the servant himself speaking, beginning in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, and who will declare me guilty? Behold, all them will wear out like a garment the moth We'll eat them up. <laughs> There's no milk toast in that statement. There's no pride in that statement, but there is resolve in that statement. I love that phrase. I have set my face as a flint. Ha, ah, what is a flint? Flint is um, it's a kind of quartz that's exceedingly hard. It was used all the way back in ancient times to form tools with uh, an axe or a hammer. You would form a tool out of flint knowing that it was going to face hard things. It was going to be used to hammer hard surfaces flat. It was going to face, if you will, hardship. But you chose it because you knew that this would be harder 
still. And Jesus, all the way through his ministry, he lives out this prophetic prayer that's placed in the, on the pen of Isaiah 700 years before these events actually happen. He knows that he's going to face hardship. He's going to face the hard faces of the people who are resolved to reject his ministry, but he will be harder still to accomplish God's will. Luke makes use um, of this statement. He alludes to it at a very significant point in um, his gospel. The most significant turning point in the gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It's where the journey to Jerusalem begins. And it's there where Luke, as the narrator says, when the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. His face set as a flint. To do what? To conquer Jerusalem. No. To face hard opposition. To face lies. To face humiliation. To face death. To suffer horribly at the hands of wicked men who gladly lied in order to put to death the author of life. And what did the father do in response? He raised him from the dead. He exalted him. He exalted his son uniquely over all of his foes because he was uniquely humiliated. He uniquely uh, modeled for us meekness, a meekness none of us are going to be called to exhibit. He modeled it to the extreme, and so he enjoys exaltation to the extreme. Um, there are many statements of this throughout the New Testament. Probably your favorite is my favorite. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what the Father does for the Son who meekly submits to humiliation, all for the will of God, all for the glory of his Father. And it's not just for him, it is for all who will walk in his steps. None of us are going to know the level of exaltation that Jesus has been given. That is a unique prize from the Father to the Son. But there is a similar exaltation God loves to give to all who walk in the steps of his Son. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the second half of the verse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Every word of that is significant. Um, it's significant that he says inherit. He could have said conquer. <laughs> Blessed are the meek, for they shall conquer the earth. That's just not the right word, though. Conquer is the word that we use when someone coerces someone else to accept his authority because he is able to amass more force and more strength than he can amass. So he has to cry, uncle, he is conquered. No. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inheritance, that's the language of gift. Someone who truly owns the thing wills it to you out of his own good pleasure. God owns the earth. It belongs to him. It belongs to him by right of creation. It belongs to him by right of redemption. It's doubly his. And he has seen fit to give it to his son supremely, but through his son he gives it to all of his son's followers. They will inherit the earth. It's a great irony there, right? We live in an age that tells us that we need to be assertive if we're going to get ahead. We need to be assertive if we're going to land on top. That's what all the personal coaches tell you, right? Yeah. 
right? You need to wake up every morning telling yourself that you deserve the very best, and then you need to make every decision all the way through life proving that you really believe that you deserve the very best. That's the only way you're going to get the very best. Believe it, and you, you shall achieve it. It's a beatitude of this world. And God says, no, 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 no. You don't want what you deserve. Don't ask of me what you deserve. No. Meekly accept the fact that my son deserves it all. And you just humbly live every day esteeming others better than yourself. And in the end, you will inherit the earth. It will be yours. It's not for now, but it is coming. Now, it's one of the last statements in the whole story of Scripture. Revelation 22 and verse 5, don't miss this. There shall be no night there. They need no light from the sun or light from a lamp, for the Lord God will give them light. And then this last line, it's not a throwaway line. And they shall reign forever and ever. God made us originally to rule and reign over his world in his name. We foolishly sinned against God's good purpose, but God through his Son brings us back to himself And if we repent and believe the gospel, as is laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount and many other places, he sees to it that we rule and reign forever, all according to the original purpose and plan of God. It's not yet, but it is coming someday. I will say this, though. I have learned by experience, and I think it is experience that's shaped by the teaching of Scripture. There is a sense in which inheriting the earth is present tense. Not the whole earth, no. But I've learned this, that God delights in giving influence, a measure of authority, and a measure of exaltation, even in this life, to those who are meek. Especially those who are in leadership, and through their leadership, they prove to be meek all the way through. It's woven into creation. God has so ordered human life, and he's so ordered relationships, and he's so ordered leadership that meekness and influence, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. What could be more creational than that? They go together like ham and cheese. Um, People who are harsh and domineering, they get a lot of stuff done, but their exaltation is brief and fleeting. People who know how to be meek are inspiring. Um, I've worked in Christian ministry, various Christian ministries, for about 30 years. So that's long enough to make every mistake and learn something from it. Uh, It's also long enough to see a lot of people come and go. I've seen a lot of leaders in Christian ministry come and go. I've seen some meek people come and go. I've seen some harsh, domineering people come and go. Here's what I've found. The harsh and domineering people, they get stuff done. They motivate people. But when they step away either when it's time to die or it's time to retire or they get moved on to another ministry, their influence withers almost immediately. Uh, You've probably had this experience as well. Have you ever been in a meeting where uh, it's a group of people and they're used to being led by someone who's really kind of harsh and really kind of domineering? That person moves on to something else. But that group is still left there. They've got to make decisions and they're considering a decision. And then someone says, well, you know what so-and-so would say if he were here? (laughs) Then someone on the other side of the room says, and aren't we glad he's not here to say it? Mm. It's very different when a person truly is meek, the way David was meek that day. 
the way Moses was meek, the way Jesus was meek throughout his ministry, then he leaves. His memory is blessed. His memory is brought to mind with a real warmness. You know what so-and-so would say if he were here? Don't you wish he was still here to say that? Yeah, what would he say? I think he would say this. I wonder if that's what we should do. A meek person inherits the earth, in a way. His influence lives beyond him. It's true for parenting, too, by the way. Um, You can correct a child with a really harsh spirit and beat the table with a clenched fist. You can scare children by doing that, but you can't influence them by doing that. It doesn't mean that children don't wander. There is such a thing as a prodigal son. Um, But meek parents who really nurture their children Eventually, their children, even if they're prodigals, they remember where meekness is found. They remember where quiet strength is found. They remember where love is found. Somehow they find a way to find their way back home. You consider all of these things, and you're naturally led very much to this question, how do do I become a meek person? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. There's a 12-step process, and now I only have five minutes left, so we're going to give just a few seconds to each step. Um, thank you for laughing. We all know instinctively it's just not like that. We cannot on our own become meek people, but I think it is very reassuring and helpful to remember that meekness is part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? That list ends with meekness and temperance, Galatians 5. Ah, what a very encouraging metaphor that is. What a powerful figure of speech that is. God changes us By the fruit of the Spirit. How does fruit grow on trees? How does an apple grow on an apple tree? Haven't you ever heard an apple tree just groaning to try to get that apple to pop out on the edge of the... It happens naturally. Now, if the tree is sick, if there's some obstruction in the branch such that the vital juices from the branch and the trunk can't make it to the end of the branch where the where the young apple is found, well, it'll never grow to maturity. But if there's health there and if there's strength there, it's going to happen. If we are healthy in the Spirit of God, all of these things are going to grow in our lives like an apple grows on the end of an apple tree branch. Um, But to be healthy, you have to, as... as, um, As Paul says earlier in that passage, you have to walk in the Spirit. You have to walk moment by moment in submission to the leading of the Spirit of God. He leads us through mysterious senses that I can't explain. He leads us also through His Word. So you've got to be in His Word day by day. You've got to be fellowshipping with the people of God because He leads us through that. You have to be in attendance at church services to hear the Word of God taught, to hear the Word of God preached. The Spirit is actively engaged through all of that.